Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 22nd, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 1 to 18. The judgment of the Lord that Jeremiah has long foretold now comes to pass. The Babylonian army destroys Jerusalem. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. Jeremiah has mostly gone pretty chronological here for a couple of chapters, and now we arrive at the, the event that he has foretold for quite some time, the actual fall of Jerusalem. What do we need to know about context, Jeremiah, and his ministry as we prepare to look at this chapter today? Yeah, so the uh, the last several chapters, like you said, have been pretty well um, delivered chronologically. Uh, this is the culmination. I mean, this is what we have been uh dreading if you're if you're reading along in jeremiah uh really since the the prophet was called by the lord this is the judgment of god uh, against his people um we had maybe a, a foretaste of that um you know 10 years previous that this isn't the first time that the babylonians uh, led by nebuchadnezzar had um besieged and then and then breached the gates of israel's holy city but um where we've been for the last 10 years is kind of with the the reign of, of Zedekiah, uh, who Nebuchadnezzar more or less put into place uh, to rule the um, uh, the Israelites there. Uh, but that's all going to come crashing down. Zedekiah has been persistently ignoring the uh, the warning of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah had uh, told him time and time again, uh, you know, the Lord says, "Submit to the Babylonians. Do not uh, do not rebel. Um, uh, submit to their yoke, and you will be delivered." Uh, but Zedekiah doesn't trust Jeremiah, doesn't trust the Lord. Uh, he, he listens instead to a faction of his, uh, of his court who uh, were advocating rebellion. Um, we've already seen like the false prophet Hananiah, uh, who, you know, predict the defeat of the Babylonians. And, and uh, that's the road that, that uh, King Zedekiah goes down. And, and um, here we are, where we're, he's going to, to reap what he has sown. Uh, and, you know, this is, Jeremiah chapter 39, this is the fall. This is the, uh, the conquest that has been predicted. And it's, um, it's painful to behold, but, uh, you know, nobody could have said that they didn't, didn't see it coming. Uh, Jeremiah has been warning, warning the people about this for some time. Mm. So even in, in just the last chapter, we had Jeremiah repeat his prediction promise of sorts even to Zedekiah that if you surrender, you will live and, and those who surrender will live as well. So we've we've heard that repeated time and time again, even in just the last chapter. As you said, we're going to see today how Zedekiah yet again ignores the word of the Lord that Jeremiah has spoken and, and Jerusalem falls. This is one of several accounts in the scriptures that we see of the fall of Jerusalem. And it, it is a a key event in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the the most important events in the Old Testament, one that I, I think 
perhaps we don't appreciate as as much as we should in terms of just how earth shattering this really was for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Any any thoughts on, on how we can understand how how big of a deal that this destruction of Jerusalem is for the people of God? Yeah, you really can't say enough about that because the um, uh, the relationship between God and his, his people of the old covenants, you know, the, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, had always been so intimately tied into uh, their occupation of this land, uh, you know, the land of Canaan, the promised land here. Uh, and particularly once the uh, the monarchy is established and you have David and Solomon, you know, Jerusalem is the, the center of God's um, a sort of presence amongst his people. I mean, their entire identity was wrapped up in being able to uh, call upon the Lord, their God, uh, you know, in this place, according to the promises that he had made and the commands that he had given. Uh, so, yeah, for that all to be uh, totally undone here, uh, for for the, uh, the holy city to be uh, breached and uh, now the temple had already um, some of this we've already seen a little bit in, in um, earlier in Jeremiah and Second Kings, it's chronicled. Um, but the reign of Zedekiah was kind of a reprieve from that, and and that's all. It's all just going to it's all just going to to come crashing down literally, uh, which is why we have when we teach you know Old Testament history to our our confirmation students and and that are in uh, Bible study. Uh, Five eighty seven BC is a date. Uh, we we you know have them memorized because this is in many respects the end of the um, uh, sort of the, the common narrative at least of the Israelite monarchy. Now, obviously, we're going to as we look ahead a little bit. We know that that the Israelites will be restored. Um, you know, the, the Persians are going to come in, and, and the uh, God's people are allowed to return home after what is called the Babylonian captivity, but. Um, you know, that's really in of itself the beginning of a new era, that second temple Judaism, as it's called. Um, so this, uh, this is a, a, just a, a, not just sort of in terms of the um, geopolitical ramifications, but in terms of the very spiritual identity of God's people, uh, this is a, you know, kind of the calamity of calamities, um, a, a big deal. And unfortunately, not, not good news for the people. Very, uh, very tragic day. Well, and with that in in mind, then I mean, you can you get the you can understand why they had such a hard time listening to what Jeremiah came saying. You know, what do you mean Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? What do you mean that that King Zedekiah and the other descendants of David aren't going to have that that man sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? It's it's all of the things that he's been prophesying along just seem rather unthinkable to the people. It seems that's exactly right. I was. Um... Uh, when I began studying this text, I was reminded of if our, the listeners have, have watched the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, there's a point in the movie where, as the, the grandfather is telling his grandson the story, um, uh, you know, the story, it appears that the princess has married, married the wrong guy. She's married Humperdinck rather than, uh, than holding out for Wesley, the hero. And the grandson gets really, really mad at the, the grandfather and he says, stop, stop, stop. That can't be right. Read it right. This can't possibly be. Um, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the impression we have as we read Jeremiah. I mean, it's not that this hasn't been foretold. We've seen it coming, but uh, for the people and, and certainly for us as we, we read these verses, it's a little bit shocking uh, that God is allowing this to happen, that the day has finally come uh, when the um, uh, temple is going to be raised and, and uh, really there's, there's nothing left of the 
um, nothing of significance left of the Judeans in Jerusalem uh, after this day. This is the beginning of the captivity, and uh, the judgment is here. Um, uh, you know the full story, and so there's hope. But if you just look at these 18 verses, um, it is a dark day and, and one that's a little bit hard to um, a little bit hard to take. Uh, so much more for the people who are actually there, I'm sure. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at, at how the text tells us about the fall of Jerusalem. Then we're in Jeremiah chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle of the gate. Nergal Sar er, Azer, Samgar Nebu, Sar Sakim, the Rab Saris, Nergal Sar Azer, the Rabmag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. That takes us through verse 10 of this chapter, Pastor Speckard. So we've we've heard some of this history foretold previously, and, and we've talked about some of this context as well. Now we come to the event itself. So take us into some of this history in terms of the, the timing. We get a, a very detailed account from, from Jeremiah here of when this happened during the reign of Zedekiah. Yeah, so that's um, uh, important to recognize that Zedekiah himself uh, was, was sort of put into uh, power by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar 10 years previous. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, previous sort of uh, besiegement and, and invasion of the Babylonians um, was in some ways the beginning of the end uh, for the, the people in Jerusalem. But they were allowed to maintain a degree of independence during Zedekiah's reign over the course of, the, of those 10 years. Because remember, the Babylonians are, are engaged in a, uh, a conflict with the Egyptians to the south of the Promised Land. And, uh, you know, in some respects, Jerusalem and, and the land around it, and Judah, uh, are territory in that fight. I mean, it's, it has less to do with the, uh, the Israelites themselves and, and more to do from, Babylon, from the uh, perspective of the Babylonians with sort of the strategic engagement with the Egyptians. Um, nevertheless, when Zedekiah is, is um, uh, you know, convinced to uh, rebel and, and to not continue submitting to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets fed up. And uh, there you have in the ninth year of Zedekiah, um, Nebuchadnezzar is just going to uh, put an end to this, this rebellion and, and these, you know, this, this people that the Egyptians had retreated to the south somewhat, uh, we know, and, and uh, it was an opportunity for the Babylonians just to 
uh, really stamp down uh, the people of Israel. And that's exactly what they do. Um, and so you have this in, in verses one and two, you see there's this, you know, 18 month or so uh, siege. Um, and we have to, <laughs> we maybe should recognize that that's, uh, that might seem like an insignificant thing compared to the conquest described in the verses after, but the siege itself would not have been any uh, any picnic for the the residents of Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, a, a horrible thing to be trapped in a city. And, and we have earlier in Jeremiah this description of you know the city running out of bread and people are starving. Um, and then after that, uh, there's a breach. The the soldiers of the Babylonians come in, and uh, the destruction is fully underway. Um, you did an excellent job, Pastor, in reading the, the Chaldean names. <laughs> I'm glad you were reading them and not me. Um, uh, I will say, you know, I mean, just one thing, because I, I know when even in the English, when you come to those names, it, it does become apparent that you're reading names that are not Hebrew names. They're, they're very clearly a different language. So, but yeah, that was that was my best attempt at it. Well, and that's actually, that's a really big deal uh, that, that they're not Hebrew names. I mean, the uh, it's sort of an offense to consider that in the uh, the middle gates, you know, in the in the in the heart of uh, uh, of, of Jerusalem, you have these foreign leaders, uh, you know, these men who are officials of a, a foreign land under a foreign king, uh, a language that is not the language of God's people, and here they sit, and they're going to um, execute judgment against the people of God. They're going to be uh, sort of holding the military trial. Uh, of the uh, the nobles of Judah, and we we see how that goes. I mean, he, they just wind up slaughtering uh, all of the uh, all of the people of, of Zedekiah's court before his eyes. Um, for an Israelite beholding that, and even for us as we read it, um, it's not a bad thing that we recognize these aren't Hebrew names. Uh, these aren't the people who should be there. This is this is just a an utter disaster. Um, it, it almost is offensive to consider. Uh, but that's that's what the the people had brought upon themselves, and now the Lord is using these uh, these foreign leaders to execute judgment against His people. Um, in addition to the obvious, you know, physical pain, there would have been a really uh, uh, sort of a, an emotional um, angst that came with watching these uh, these foreigners, uh, you know, take hold of the uh, the holy city of God's people. Really really painful thing to behold. Yeah, certainly a painful thing to behold. And just, you know, again, seeing the foreigners coming into a place where they really shouldn't be. And and they're after Zedekiah. So the, the text focuses us particularly on Zedekiah's response. And he's been in view for a couple chapters now in his interactions with Jeremiah. As we pointed out earlier, Jeremiah has told him, if you surrender, you will live. Zedekiah doesn't do that. He chooses to flee instead. Just take us into to what happens here to Zedekiah as he tries to escape the Chaldean army. Yeah, Zedekiah is such a, a tragic character because you get the sense uh, from the, the previous chapters in Jeremiah uh, that he's not, it's not as though he's all that strong-willed a leader himself. He's convinced to engage in this rebellion and to maintain this rebellion. He kind of waffles back and forth between um, you know, at, at some points, even seeming to be persuaded by Jeremiah, but then the other uh, officials in his court convinced him not so much. He was going to, you know, he permitted the execution of Jeremiah, which should have been uh, the death of Jeremiah. But then he's he's convinced to um, to allow Jeremiah to be safe. I mean, he's just he's this guy trying to hold his finger up in the wind and figure out uh, which way to go. Um, and, and clearly, he chose the wrong uh, the wrong path. He he uh, ultimately rejected. 
uh, the Council of the Prophet of God. Uh, you can imagine how, from his perspective previously, the idea of uh, surrendering uh, to to Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps out of uh, out of fear or out of pride, he didn't want to do that. Uh, probably the the idea of continuing to lead what could have been a glorious rebellion. You can see how that would have um, appealed to him, um, but it, it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> the rebellion was uh, was was put down uh, decisively here, and now he's going to suffer. Uh, he uh, had made himself an enemy uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, and so even setting aside sort of the the you know the judgment of God that is coming down, just from the perspective of the Babylonians, uh, you know Nebuchadnezzar had put Zedekiah on the throne. Zedekiah had then uh, rebelled against him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows no mercy uh, in in crushing uh, uh, Zedekiah, and, and we can all, you almost can't even fathom uh, the amount of, of pain uh, one would feel in in watching your sons uh, and your nobles uh, slaughtered before you, and then having your eyes put out. So, so the last thing you see uh, is the death of the people you love, and then you're taken taken in captivity as a you know, almost a trophy of war um, back to Babylon. I mean, this is this is a fate you wouldn't wish on anyone. Uh, but that's what Zedekiah brought upon himself by, um, uh, you know, abandoning the the counsel of God and God's prophet. Um, it, it's almost hard to imagine a worse fate. Uh, but that's precisely what um, what Zedekiah received here. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a very uh, horrific thing to read, to think about what happens to Zedekiah. And it's, I mean, it's described in, in full detail. And yet, as you said, this is this is something that Zedekiah has brought upon himself by his rebellion against the Lord and against his word. It's something that Zedekiah has been told will happen. And I mean, you know, ultimately, previously, he's talked about, you know, you didn't you're not going to surrender, then you will die. There were a couple of times earlier in the book of Jeremiah where Zedekiah was told you will before the end see Nebuchadnezzar face to face eye to eye was the language that had been used almost in a a, a, a sad foreshadowing of what does end up happening to Zedekiah's eyes this is where you know we leave Zedekiah's story in verse 8 and, and continue on but before we leave Zedekiah behind in terms of the the example that we see in him what what is it from Zedekiah the way that he acts not only here in this chapter but in the, the previous several ones what should we make of that as Christians how is this a an example to us probably in a negative way I suppose but how do how do we take what we hear about Zedekiah and make use of that as Christians still today yeah I think there's a there's a there's an application in the sense that what motivated Zedekiah is what motivates a lot of us I think what motivates all of us at certain points in our our lives, you know, the, the desire to uh, try to, by our own reason um, and by our own sort of, uh, you know, reading of the signs and, and, and judgments of the times, uh, try to pick the right way, setting aside what God has said, setting aside what God has established and, and ordained. Uh, we think that we know better and we're going to uh, depart from God's word and try to navigate a path ourselves. We're going to take the wheel, we're going to steer, uh, and we're going to. Uh, you know, try to to find a better road than the one the Lord has set before our feet. And when that happens, uh, when we when we do that, uh, you know, the, the story of Zedekiah is a story of paranoia. It's a story of of just almost unceasing worry. Um, you know, you can just tell in the way that he he relates to Jeremiah and to the rulers in his court. He he 
can't make up his own mind. He, he's, he's lost. He doesn't know what to do or where to go. Um, if he just would have listened to the Lord from the beginning, uh, he would have been spared. If he, if he would have, you know, it, admittedly, it's a difficult message that Jeremiah was, uh, was proclaiming. I mean, to have to surrender um, for the sake of your life, I mean, that's not an easy thing. But if he had committed to that path, then he would have had the protection of God. And if God is with you, uh, you're obviously going to uh, persevere. Uh, the second you go a different route um, is the second you bring upon yourself uh, not only the inevitable sort of consequence of your misdeeds, your undoing, but a whole lot of fear and worry and anxiety and doubt. Um, and, and I think we've all been there. We've been there when the Lord tells uh, you know tells us what loving uh, our God and loving our neighbor is going to look like, and we decide uh, we think we, we have a better way. And then from that moment on, we discover that the wilderness is wild uh, and that the darkness of the valley is quite dark. And we would, you know, uh, <laughs> we just find ourselves totally uh, overwhelmed uh, by forces bigger and stronger than we are. And hopefully uh, we have the opportunity to repent and by the, the grace of God, uh, have the wisdom to turn back to his way and his word. Um, if we don't, uh, we see what happens when things spiral out of control here. And I think that's the warning that Zedekiah uh, continues to be for, for God's people yet today. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way you framed Zedekiah and, and how he's motivated what you see in, in terms of his decision-making and the way he interacts with Jeremiah is, is spot on. And, and certainly today, you know, how, how easy it is for us to to simply look at, at the world around us. And as you said, you know, put your finger up into the wind and try to discern the, the sign of the times. And, and maybe to, you know, to borrow a phrase that we hear sometimes to be on the right side of history and, and trying to pick that right side. Whereas, you know, what do we have? We have the word of the Lord and, and where we have the word of the Lord there, we have certainty and there we have life. And, and as you said, you know, this word that Zedekiah receives is a difficult one. I mean, what king wants to to surrender? Who wants to admit defeat before his enemy? And yet, had he done that, he would have lived. And, and as you said, I think very well, he discovered that you know, outside of the road that, that the Lord had set before him, he discovered that that truly is death. He, he thought maybe he could avoid the suffering by going that way. And in fact, he only found greater suffering, far greater suffering by going that way, which I think is, you know, one thing about the word of the Lord so often in his commandments, he, he does teach us how to love him and how to love our neighbor. And that does involve you know, sacrifice on our part, setting aside the things that we want and, and sometimes suffering. And yet in that path truly is life. And it's when we step outside of that, we find ourselves perhaps not in the same, you know, gory way that Zedekiah found it, but we do find that that the Lord's way does give life, and it is outside that that we find only death, ultimately. Yeah, that's exactly right, Pastor Apple, and I think our, our culture uh, is in some ways living that. I mean, the uh, you, we hardly have to uh, enumerate the ways our culture has, has deviated from uh, sort of the natural law of God. Uh, over the course of the last several generations. And and now we're kind of seeing what it looks like. God has established a path for um, his people. And when we say his people, I mean, just not even not even with respect to uh, Christianity, but just for people in general made in his image, God's law is good. Uh, and those who abide by natural law, there is sort of even in the brokenness of our, 
our fallen world, uh, there is sort of an order that can be maintained and a, um, a general sort of um, uh, livelihood and, and, and peace that is possible, uh, at least in a temporal sense. But when you, when you abandon those things, because sometimes they are hard, sometimes natural marriage is hard, sometimes seeing children as a blessing is hard. Um, uh, and so we abandon those things and we, we go our own way, you know, whether it's uh, sort of sexual, sexual libertinism or, or, you know, any number of, of so-called progressive developments that our culture has undertaken. Uh, we discover very quickly that this this is more than we can handle. This is a um, things are falling apart around us. Uh, we find ourselves totally reeling, trying to uh, steer back to some solid ground. Uh, but outside of what God has actually given and established, there's no solid ground to be found. Uh, it is the word of the Lord uh, that abides forever. Uh, it is uh, you know that is the only true light in the darkness. And until we turn back to that light. Um, we're all like Zedekiah, just desperately trying to figure out our next move until eventually the, you know, the, the game is up and we're, um, you know, we're captured, we're done. And uh, thankfully, you know, there's always the opportunity to repent. There's always the chance uh, to be restored. Um, but we see here what happens when you don't. Well, and I mean, that I think that points to the, the beauty of what Jeremiah does in constantly repeating to Zedekiah, this is what is going to happen. If you surrender, you will live. If you don't surrender, you will die. And, and over and over again, Zedekiah pay, chases some other option, something else, you know, looking for that light, whether it's continuing to fight or asking the Egyptians for help or even at the end trying to run away. And over and over again, he finds that he, he can't escape what God has said. And, and the, the wonderful thing about Jeremiah just continuing to preach the truth to him is that here is that foundation in the midst of you know, trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. There's there's one light, as you said, and it is the word of the Lord. And, and that uh, tragically could have been Zedekiah's foundation. He chose something else. But but what an example to us to to found ourselves there on that word of God and nowhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps a, a comfort here is that notice how God did not withdraw his prophets. I mean, even until the very end, uh, the prophet of God is there uh, preaching to the king and preaching to the people. And obviously the people are ignoring him and it's not going well for Jeremiah. Uh, he's called the weeping prophet for good reason. But God and his word are present. Uh, they were there until the last moment uh, saying, repent, return, uh, and you will um, you will live. Um, you know, there, there's comfort there for us that, you know, the, the word of the Lord uh, is not absent from the valley of the shadow of death. Um, it is here calling us to repentance and faith. Um, we don't always listen, but it's not for lack of God's uh, calling and preaching to us. Yeah, even, even in the midst of this great destruction, the Lord is speaking his word, calling his people to repent. We're going to take a break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to Pastor Dan Specker tell us about Jeremiah chapter 39 today. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 22nd. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 39 verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we were looking at the first part of chapter 39 here. It talked about King Zedekiah and, and how his continued fear, paranoia, indecision, because of his lack of faith in the word of God, led to his horrific end. And, and after verse 8, King Zedekiah is now gone, and the text really shifts to talk more about the aftermath of what's going to happen here in Judah now that Babylon has sacked Jerusalem and, and what's going to happen. And, and Jeremiah really is going to deal with this not only at the rest of this chapter, but for several chapters in a row here. And he starts with bringing out Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be a pretty important figure going forward. It tells us that he carried into exile a lot of people, but he left some in the land of Judah and talks about these these poor people who were given vineyards and fields at the same time. What do, what do we see, at least as we get started in looking at the aftermath of the Babylonian conquest? Yeah, I think this is a, an important, um, from the aspect of the Babylon, or from the perspective of the Babylonians, uh, you can understand why they would leave some people behind, uh, because they're an empire. I mean, they're looking to, uh, from the, the widest reaches of their uh, their domain generates something in terms of, uh, you know, usable goods or, or crops or whatever it would be. And so to leave the place totally um, uh, uninhabited wouldn't really help them. And so they, uh, in kind of this, this ironic twist, you see the, the poor uh, amongst the Judeans, given the, um, given some of the land and the vineyards, and the fields that they might continue to produce crops and goods uh, for the sake of the Babylonian empire. Um, you'll sometimes see these verses um, uh, put forward as an example of kind of the, the, the first or the last will be first uh, motif within the scriptures. Um, you know, and especially today, sometimes you'll th- see these verses used as uh, kind of a, a positive ex- example of economic equity that, uh, you know, the, the, the nobles have been slaughtered and now, uh, and now the poor are going to take up the land. You can you can imagine how somebody with a certain um, economic mindset would would really cheer on what uh, what the Babylonians did here. I think as Christians we do well to to recognize that um, certainly the last will be first is an important theme within uh, the scriptures. Um, this probably isn't uh, a section that we would want to use as a great example of that, simply because it's such an obvious. Um, act of pragmatism on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this isn't really God's justice being done. I mean, the poor uh, who are given these lands aren't really benefiting in the way that we think of God's people benefiting when the last are made first. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it's an interesting side note that Nebuchadnezzar did this. Uh, we just don't want to make more of it than uh, 
uh, you know, then maybe maybe we should hear, if that makes sense. I, I think so. So, I mean, something to the effect of, again, probably just a very practical move on Nebuchadnezzar's part that... I mean, say say there's a a Judean nobleman, some some rich person from from Judah who gets back into to Judah and starts to, you know, gather perhaps an army to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is trying to win the hearts, perhaps, of the the people who might otherwise rebel against him, and so that they'll one day remember, oh, who is it that made us rich? It was Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to fight against him. Something like that. Just a very practical thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's very. It's all the the you know, the purview of an emperor to, to make sure that, uh, again, the, the places furthest from, uh, from home are, are continuing to be productive and, and, and peaceful, uh, aspects of the empire. You can see why he would do it. Um, not really any great victory for the poor amongst Judah, because now they're, uh, again, the, the beauty of being who they were, where they were, was their relationship with God almighty. And, you know, the opportunity to, maybe for some of them to improve their uh, temporal material standing came at the cost of losing, uh, you know, so much of what the old covenants had promised uh, in their relationship with God. So um, it's an interesting thing that happened. Probably not any great victory, even for the, even for the poor amongst Judah. Right. And, and maybe, you know, the only other thing that, that perhaps comes to my mind on this is that perhaps there's a, a slight vindication of some of the things that Jeremiah has preached in the sense that, you know, those who rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah at their head, have met their end, while those poor folks in the land now are starting to see some actual benefit from becoming servants of Nebuchadnezzar. I, I mean, I, I don't, I suppose, you know, some of these could have fought against him, but it, it does seem to, if anything, maybe a slight vindication of what Jeremiah has preached. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, this is after all what Jeremiah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is what Jeremiah had, had uh, told the people to do, just submit to Nebuchadnezzar uh, and you will be preserved. Um, you know, the poor didn't really have a say in the matter, but, uh, Obviously, they were ruled by Zedekiah, and, and Zedekiah went his way. But uh, now, almost by by circumstance, they they wind up adhering to that which Jeremiah preached, and and it works out for them at least uh, for the time being. So Jeremiah then comes into view personally in the rest of this chapter. So we pick up again in Jeremiah thirty nine, now at verse eleven. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Robsaris, Nergal, Sar, Azer, the Robmog, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. That's the rest of Jeremiah chapter 39, uh, was verses 11 through 18. So, Pastor Speckard, now we, we come more particularly to Jeremiah personally, 
And Nebuchadnezzar has heard about Jeremiah and, and he gives command to his captain to, to take care of Jeremiah. I mean, in terms of just Nebuchadnezzar knowing about Jeremiah, maybe some of the deserters had told him about Jeremiah. What, what do you see going on in these verses here? Yeah, I think that's reasonable enough. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was clearly aware of the uh, sort of political political climate uh, in Judah, even prior to his uh, his invasion here. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, had been preaching surrender, had been preaching uh, sort of the, uh, the wisdom of uh, uh, submitting to the rule of the Babylonians. And so, uh, from his perspective, Jeremiah was an ally. Now, we know that that's not <laughs> that's not really the full the full story, and uh, this is only the beginning of the kind of interesting um, uh, relationship between the rulers of the Babylonians uh, and the prophets of God's people. Uh, you know, they they begin to see more fully uh, through the prophets of God's people how how God is using them uh, for His His ultimate purposes and will. Um, but yeah, in this little instance, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean. Uh, knows that Jeremiah was somebody who uh, was um, uh, trying to convince the people, and, and particularly Zedekiah, to submit to him. Um, and you can see why he sees him as an ally for that purpose. So from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this is probably just a, a political move. But but in terms of theologically and what what's Jeremiah has been preaching so far, what's happened to him, uh, what how do these verses, what should we recall from other places in Jeremiah's ministry? Well, I think that uh, I think that you know Jeremiah um, uh, really is very very lucky to uh, to be alive at this point. I mean, he's he's escaped execution more than once, and, and um, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I guess it's not really a vindication um, in the sense that Jeremiah would have been devastated to see the fall of his uh, of his people and, and his um, uh, you know the holy city here, uh, but it is very much a um a reminder that god uh, uh is with his people uh with his prophets uh and jeremiah who has been faithful to uh to god and proclaiming his word uh, is protected and preserved here and we see that also with ebed melech even more maybe even more particularly uh god does not forget uh, those who are faithful to him um uh, and and that kind of plays itself out with the way that the babylonians uh, the Babylonians deal with those who are still left uh, in the land of Judah there. Yeah, I mean, to, yeah, I think that that's a, a good note there, you know, in terms of a of, of vindication of Jeremiah, it's it maybe not quite the right word. He, he certainly he's he's his word is proved to be true that, that what Jeremiah said has come to pass. But certainly uh, Jeremiah is by no means rejoicing over this. I mean, he writes the book of Lamentations precisely because of what he's experiencing and seeing happening at these very moments but but it is to say that that he has he is the true prophet of the lord what he has said has come to pass as a, as a true prophet is and so he is spared by nebuchadnezzar and we're going to find out more about this in in chapter 40 as well in terms of how this plays out uh, for the time being he's he's handed over to be uh to be watched by gedaliah and and he's just a, as one note he's the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and we've we've seen this family before. Shaphan was one of the officials of faithful King Josiah, and and on several occasions, members of Shaphan's family have been helpful to Jeremiah. And and so just to see him get Eliah of this family show up at this point in the narrative, 
almost provides a, a slight note of hope that, that maybe something can go right. It's not going to, as we will see in the coming chapters, but there, it is, it is important, I think, to, to notice the family that Gedaliah comes from. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's, as we reflect upon it, just the, the historical event itself, uh, to see, uh, you know, the hand of God uh, active amongst these people and these families. Um, now, we know that it's, it's not always the case that um, uh, the, the prophets of God are, are uh, blessed in, in sort of a temporal way. It, it doesn't, always, doesn't always seem to be. I mean, we just had in the, uh, the lectionary not long ago the beheading of John the Baptist. I mean, sometimes being faithful to God's preach, uh, God, God's revealed word can, uh, can lead to your temporal demise. Uh, but the Lord had promised uh, protection and preservation uh, to those who are faithful to him. And yeah, and you know, the more, the more we talk about it, the more I think vindication is, is probably fair, even as, um, uh, even as it was a horrible, horrible day. And you're right. The book of Lamentations is, is, I mean, Jeremiah's sort of reflection on this, uh, this event and these happenings, um, there is something to be said for, you know, what he said was true in the end, uh, the word of the Lord was proven correct. And, uh, those who are faithful to it, uh, whether we're talking about Jeremiah or the family of Gedaliah or Ebed Melech, uh, you know, those, those people, um, uh, are, are dealt with graciously by God. Now, so that's what happens to Jeremiah at this point. Chapter 40 picks up more of that account, Jeremiah remaining here under the care of Gedaliah. Uh, chapter 39 closes with uh, this account of Evid Melech, whom we met in the previous chapter. He's one who had taken care of Jeremiah when he had been thrown into the cistern and was sunk down in the mud. Evid Melech comes to his rescue. Here, Jeremiah is given a word from the Lord for Evid Melech, particularly in the face of this disaster. What do we see from, from what the Lord tells Evid Melech and from the example that he provides? I think it's a really beautiful example of God uh, caring for the least of these. I mean, uh, it's, you know, as Christians, we, we come across an Ethiopian eunuch and our mind is going to jump to a different account uh, in the book of Acts there. But uh, obviously, this this happening much long, um, you know, many, many many centuries before, but much of the same thing. God uh, uh, sharing His word uh, and His grace uh, with the people who you wouldn't necessarily expect. In this case, uh, you know, an Ethiopian uh, who had uh, uh, you know dealt with Jeremiah uh, righteously and, and saved him from the cistern uh, is rewarded by God, and uh, God through Jeremiah says explicitly. Um, you were afraid and you will not be given into the hand of those men. Um, you will be saved. You will not fall by the sword. I mean, it's a very personal type of um, salvation with the lowercase s. We're not, we're not necessarily talking about eternal things here, but um, that God Almighty in the midst of all of this uh, uh, calamity, in the midst of all the things that are happening in Jeremiah 39, uh, God remembers that this Ethiopian eunuch uh, cared for his prophet, uh, and God preserves him, therefore, uh, and even gives a word through Jeremiah, pretty much stating explicitly, because you have put your trust in me, uh, you, will, you will have your life as a prize of the war. So, um, you know, I think a really, um, a really comforting account, if you consider that Evan Malik was not, he's not anybody that we would remember otherwise, uh, but here he's, he's held up, um, uh, quite dynamically as an example of somebody whom God does not forget 
due to his faithfulness. Well, I think a reminder, too, of the um, the importance of, of personal faithfulness in the midst of a, a largely crooked generation. I mean, everybody around Ebed Melech there in the, the court of the king who are, who's talking to Zedekiah is perfectly happy, it seems, that Jeremiah has been thrown into this muddy cistern. And, and Ebed Melech, you know, well, well, what can one person do? Well, he's he's faithful. And, and what does he do? He does provide for Jeremiah in a very physical way in the previous chapter. And that that personal faithfulness, while it doesn't end up, you know, I guess, saving the day or, or, you know, sparing Jerusalem from its ultimate disaster here, that personal faithfulness is seen by the Lord. He, he does see what his people do and, and he, he ends up and rewarding that faithfulness in this, this temporal way. And I, I think that's an encouragement to us still living in a, a faithless generation to not discount those, you know, simple, small, seemingly small acts of faithfulness, not necessarily so that we would receive you know, a reward, but for the sake of being faithful to, to our God. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that uh, it's a really, uh, really important application to our own time where, you know, the, the little acts of faithfulness that God gives us opportunity to, uh, to demonstrate, they're not necessarily going to turn the cultural tide. I mean, we're, uh, uh, I think we, we often grow so frustrated in trying to, uh, change the world or save the nation or transform our society. You know, those, those are, are laudable things, I suppose, um, but they don't always work out the way we want them to work out. And uh, this is a reminder that even if, uh, you know, the, the culture in which you live is is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say, uh, God does not fail to notice uh, the faithfulness of his individual children uh, and the reward uh, is our life. You know, in this case for Abed Melech, it's just a, uh, his life, you know, temporarily speaking. But we know that the reward for trusting in God uh, is eternal. And that should be a uh, tremendous uh, comfort to those of us who look around and see uh, so much of, of what we, uh, we hold dear seemingly, seemingly crumbling. Um, nevertheless, uh, God's children are not... Uh, are not forgotten uh, by their God, and the uh, just the little opportunities we have to um, sort of demonstrate or manifest our trust in Him, uh, particularly by serving our neighbor, by serving uh, the proclamation of God's word uh, in the context of a Christian congregation. Uh, shoot, we as as pastors, we might think about all of the faithful Christians who do so much to support their pastor, um, even though it doesn't seem like it makes a huge difference in the end. Uh, God notices those things. Uh, God, of course, uh, endeavors to uh, see his word go out to all people. Uh, and as we have the chance to um, uh, be used by him in support of that, uh, you know, he, he's not he's not ignoring uh, the, the the times that we we do so, uh, even as he didn't ignore Ebed Melech here. And maybe that's a, that's a good segue as we think about this event as a whole that, you know, from Evid Melek, we see that, you know, God 
takes notice of his children. He does not forget those who are, are faithful to him. And, and to think about that, I think, is, is a helpful handle as we consider the destruction of Jerusalem as a whole, because it is a horrific event. And, and we'll be actually covering the book of Lamentations after we finish Jeremiah here on Sharper Iron. And we'll see there just how how devastating this really was. How How is it that in the midst of such destruction, as, as we see here in Jeremiah chapter 39, that, that we know that even an event like this, that God's not forgetting his children, that he's actually doing something for the sake of his children, even in a destruction like this. Right. And that's such an important concept for, for Christians to understand as we think uh, about this, uh, this, this horrible tragedy, uh, what seems like the utter defeat of God's people. And yet we know it, it's not uh, that uh, God's promises uh, are steadfast, even in the midst of um, uh, the suffering. And it causes us to remember, and we think about like Hebrews chapter 12, uh, that God will use suffering uh, as a way of disciplining us. And when we say discipline, um, maybe we might compare and contrast that to um, you know, maybe something like just punishment. If we're just being punished, if it's just us suffering for our misdeeds, um, there's not a lot of comfort there. But if we recognize it as discipline and understand that God as our Heavenly Father uh, occasionally allows us to hurt in order to draw us closer to Him, um, certainly for the Israelites, uh, this Babylonian captivity uh, is not the first time that God's people are um, separated from Him for a short time or or caused to suffer or to wander uh, for a uh, sort of a, a brief interlude, that their faithfulness in him might be strengthened. Um, I mean, this is actually kind of a theme with God's people, uh, as we think even back all the way to the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, uh, that, uh, you know, very often it's when things are going well that they are least faithful, uh, least inclined to remember their God. Um, but God uses this type of calamity to bring them to a fuller remembrance of who they are in light of who he has made them to be. Um, and as Christians, we need to remember that too. The prosperity gospel says that if you have faith in God, everything's going to uh, you know, be great. And if things aren't great, it's because your faith isn't strong enough. Well, that's not at all the testimony of the scriptures, uh, that very often um, it is when uh, God allows suffering or sorrow or turmoil or uh, you know, the various effects of sin to crash into our lives. Uh, it's when we're knocked onto our back by those things that we look up and we see the cross of Christ. And that is a good thing. These temporal sufferings can have an eternal benefit. And even as we say that, we have to, I mean, we don't want to be dismissive of the reality of suffering. Um, it's easy for me to sit in my study and talk about, oh yeah, God's using your suffering to draw you closer to him. Uh, so therefore, you know, stiff upper lip and, and uh, just sort of deal with it. Well, that's, that's not the right attitude. Um, in fact, we can be more honest about the reality of suffering. Uh, we can call a spade a spade and say, this really hurts because we know that God has a plan even for that hurt. Uh, and that as God does, he takes even the worst of that, which the devil, the world and our sinful nature produce and uses it for his purposes 
to draw his children closer to him. Well, I think that's where a book like Lamentations really comes in helpful. And even just thinking through Jeremiah, where we've seen him on various occasions lament before the Lord, where you know he's undergoing that suffering as the faithful prophet of God and is saying, you know, how long, why is this happening? Vindicate me. That's that's the faithful Christian response in the face of suffering is to cry out to God as the one who, you know, is the one who disciplines and and let him be the one to work through it rather than, you know, try to deny it or avoid it or, you know, sugarcoat it. Rather, the, the Christian cries out to God in lament, which, you know, in that very process of lamenting, he, he ends up drawing us closer to him, just like he's doing in the discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, and we, the author of Hebrews, uh, if, of course, we have more time, we could just read all of chapter 12 and, and, and appreciate that if God ceases to discipline us, that's a bad sign. I mean, you, you know, sometimes as children, we might remember, um, we, we've, if you're just so bad that your parents, your parents are just, they're just fed up with you. And, and suddenly you're not being punished. You're just kind of getting, being ignored. Well, that's a horrible feeling because that means the relationship has been lost. Um, the loving father we have, our heavenly father, uh, is so, uh, so persistent in his desire to have us uh, in full communion with him in relationship with him, that he continues to discipline us. He continues to send his word uh, that we would be transformed uh, from the sinner that we are into the saint uh, he calls us to be um, in this life. There's always that, that constant tension that back and forth. Uh, but we know that ultimately God's discipline in eternity uh, leads to perfect salvation uh, and the full restoration of our relationship with him uh, doesn't always feel good in the moment. Uh, suffering isn't uh, is by almost by definition, suffering isn't fun. Uh, but the Christian can say the Lord is using this uh, to draw me closer to him. Uh, that we know is true. Pastor Specker, we have just about two minutes left on the morning. This chapter, Jeremiah chapter 39, in many respects is a very dark chapter. How is it that even in a text like this, God still points us toward the light that is ours in Christ? Yeah, maybe as a final thought, uh, some of your your listeners are maybe familiar with the idea of uh, catastrophe and eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe, E-U, followed by the word catastrophe, uh, is a word that, that J.R.R. Tolkien coined to describe the almost um, unbelievable uh, arrival of, uh, of hope when all hope was lost. Uh, and the point is that we, we don't fully appreciate the light of God's gospel until we have been overwhelmed fully by the darkness of sin. And it is in the, uh, the moments of utter defeat, utter hopelessness, utter despair, it is in those moments when we are most prepared to receive um, uh, as, as something given totally by God and not merited by us, uh, his grace, his love, his hope, his gospel. The, uh, Jerus- the, the residents of Jerusalem, the Judeans here, are totally defeated. And yet we know uh, that they will be restored. When Christ was laid in the tomb on Good Friday, he was dead. That looked like utter defeat. And yet we know that that only prepares us for the victory of Easter Sunday. As Christians, we will know the feeling in our own lives of total darkness and despair. And yet we know how the story ends. The catastrophe gives way to you, catastrophe, good catastrophe, uh, the totally surprising, miraculous intervention that only God can provide 
in order to save us. And this is what Jeremiah 39, as horrible as it is to sort of recall, uh, that's what it's setting the stage for. Pastor Dan Speckert is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Speckert, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.